Church in Sally, South Carolina. We pray God's richest blessings for you as you study His Word. Well, if you could find your place in Matthew's Gospel, we're going to be finishing out chapter 13 today. We'll be starting in verse 44. So as you find your place there, I want to ask you to just think about this, I guess it's a phenomenon maybe. You know, there's a lot of people that I guess are famous in the world's eyes. So you might think of a, a popular singer or a professional athlete. People who, in the world's eyes, you when you see them out in public or you at a restaurant or you know something like that, they're they're known, right? Maybe they're on television, especially if they're playing a sport. It's football season. If you see a professional, like if you saw an NFL football player that was popular, and you just saw them in McDonald's or Chick Fil A one day, you know it. You, people would take notice, right? It'd be like, oh, that's, that's so-and-so, you know, and they call their name. And that's kind of a phenomenon of how the world at large views people. But, you know what people don't consider about those people? They got a mama and a daddy. And I guarantee you, their mama and their daddy don't ooh and ah when they walk in the room. Right, and, and folks maybe maybe like their childhood buddies. Oh, he he ain't nothing special. I knew him when he was, you know, in kindergarten. You know, we were playing at recess. You know, whatever. But there's a there's a, a sense of familiarity that takes away some of the ooh and ah, right? So if you've known somebody for a long time, you grew up with somebody, and now maybe for whatever reason in their chosen field they have excelled and they have become well-known in the world, the rest of the world looks at them differently. And you might look at them like, that's just so-and-so, you know. We, we were neighbors. We went to school together. I remember when he got in trouble in the third grade and got whipped by the teacher back in the, in the back room. You know, you might think something like that, right? So that uh, the novelty or the intrigue is, is not there. It's interesting how the Lord of all creation dealt with the exact same thing. People who were in his hometown, who grew up, and, and here, here's what, they, you'll see it today in the text. They, they just, oh, he's just that, son of that carpenter down the road him and and his wife Mary you remember you remember Mary remember the one with all the all the talk right I mean they might say something like that we know his brothers we know his sisters he's nobody special and you sense maybe some envy or some jealousy or some uh, just outright contempt just because Jesus was different and the world wouldn't recognize it, especially those who knew him 
for a while, while he was on earth. So just keep that concept kind of in the back of your mind as we go through this text, and I think you'll see that come to light here at the end of our passage today. Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 to 58, the second part of uh, the text really that we began two weeks ago, the kingdom of heaven, what's it look like? What's it feel like? Here's what Scripture says in, in Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 44. You see the words on the screen. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls, and upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach, and they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad they threw away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? And they said or were saying to him, yes. And Jesus said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like a head of a household who brings out of his treasure things new and old. When Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from there. He came to his hometown and began teaching them in their synagogues so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. Father, I pray in Jesus' name today you will speak to our hearts, help us understand, help us be obedient, and help me to speak only that which you have called me to speak, nothing more, nothing less. And Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight. God, my rock and my redeemer. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What do we learn about the kingdom of heaven? Jesus has already taught several parables in our previous passage. If you go back to verse 24 up to verse 43, several parables like this. They begin the same way when he says the kingdom of heaven may be compared to this, the seed and the sower. Another parable, verse 31, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. Verse 33, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven. All these things that Jesus is trying to explain 
about the kingdom of heaven. And here's what happens every time. Those closest to him, those followers, his disciples, they have been given a gift of understanding. And so the more he tells them, the more they start to understand. The light bulb is starting to come on. And yet all these crowds who have consistently opposed and rejected him, they don't understand. And he speaks in parables for this reason. And he even tells his disciples, you've got a blessing here. I've called you to follow me. You're following me. And you want to know more, so guess what? I'm giving you more. But all these people around here who just disregard me and oppose the message and reject who I am and what I'm saying, they're not getting it. It's because they don't want to get it. And so they continually reject the message, so I'm going to continually make it harder for them to understand. Because that's their decision. They've rejected the truth they've been shown, or that they've heard even. And so Jesus continues his teaching here about the kingdom of heaven. And there's several different things here. I'm, I'm going to try to just step through each one. There's two brief parables in the first three verses that we'll kind of put together because they're very similar. And look at two characteristics of the kingdom and two principles we should recognize and, and obey in this text. First thing is this. God's kingdom is supremely valuable. God's kingdom is supremely valuable. Look at the first three verses. You see two parables, very short, but very profound. Verse 44, a treasure is hidden in a field. And so what happens? A man finds the treasure, and when he finds it, he hides it again. He doesn't want, anybody, he doesn't want it getting away from him. And then look what he does. He don't miss this, joyfully, he joyfully sells everything he has to buy the field where the treasure is buried. This is a picture of the sacrifice involved in discipleship when kingdom values are taken seriously. This, this man finds this treasure and he immediately realizes there's nothing on this earth more valuable than this right here. I'm going to give up everything I have so I can have this. That's how valuable the kingdom of heaven is. Look at verse 45. A pearl of great value. A merchant is seeking fine pearls. So now you have somebody looking. See, the first guy wasn't looking for it. He found it. This person in this parable is seeking value. So let me just pause a second and, and just insert this. Many people, you may be one of these many, many people live their lives trying to find purpose, trying to find something that matters. They, they recognize that there's a need for... I want my life to, to count for something. I, I want to I matter. You matter to Jesus. That's how much you matter. There's nothing more valuable. You're looking for something valuable to acquire that will last you for your life. 
and, and in this case, beyond. So, so when you're looking for something valuable, don't miss it when it's right in front of your face. This merchant in this parable is seeking fine pearls. So then what does he find? He finds one that is of great value. You might say more valuable than every other one he's ever found. So what does he do? He sells everything he has. And he buys that one. You see the similarity between these two? Each of these people in these parables have found the most valuable thing there is in existence. It's inclusion in the kingdom of heaven. That, that's the most valuable thing there is. David Turner wrote, These parables present both the sacrifice and the resulting joy of those who follow Jesus. And both of them kind of have this same sense about them. The first one is very explicit. It says, from joy over it, he goes and sells. And so, both of these people in these parables, they are joyful. It's not like, oh, well, I guess I've got to give up everything i got so I can have this. That's not what's going on. There's joy. What's the first thing we sang this morning? There's joy in the house of the Lord. And why is that? It's because of the presence of Jesus Christ. That's why there's joy. That's why there can be joy that surpasses whatever your circumstances might be at the moment. Happiness and joy are two different things. You can be happy and that goes away and then you're sad. Joy is something deeper that abides in you regardless. It's not dependent on your outside circumstances. It's dependent on Jesus Christ living in you. That's joy. God's kingdom is supremely valuable. Number two, God's kingdom is explicitly exclusive. And this kind of has the potential to, to hurt our feelings a little bit or make us uncomfortable. But here's what that means. When I say God's kingdom is explicitly exclusive, here's what that means. Surrender to Jesus, you get the kingdom. Reject Jesus... You don't. It's that simple. So, you have two paths. You remember the old Robert Frost poem? Two paths diverge in a yellow wood. And you know the next line? I had to memorize this. This is the only part I remember. Two paths diverge in a yellow wood. And sorry, I could not travel both. Isn't that interesting? Even literature, poetry reflects a biblical truth. You can't go both ways. You've got two paths. You're going to follow Jesus or you're not going to follow Jesus, but you can't put one foot on one and one foot on another. God's kingdom is explicitly exclusive. Jesus has taught this principle in, in several different ways, and He will even further into the Gospel. But right here, He uses this parable, a dragnet is cast into the sea. And look what happens when this net... This is not... Okay, two kind of nets. Right, I'm going to just paint a picture for you. If you're in a bass boat and you're fishing for largemouth bass and you hook one and you get it right up to the boat and your partner grabs a little net about like this and scoops it up so it doesn't get lost, right? That's one net. That's not what we're talking about. You ever been shrimping? Big, long, like 50 feet 
got weights on the bottom and floats on the top. And you have one person on each side and you go and it's just catching everything. Right? That's what we're talking about here. A big, huge net. And the Bible says, catching fish of every kind and gathered up till the net is filled. And what happens when they take it up on the shore? The good fish are gathered into containers. The bad fish are thrown away. Now the explanation, verse 49. The end of the age or the consummation of God's plan. Angels will come forth and remove the wicked from among the righteous. The wicked will be thrown into the furnace of fire. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Who are these righteous and who are these wicked? Anybody here good enough to go to heaven without Jesus? Anybody going to heaven without Jesus? Anybody? No. So it can't be that, right? The righteous. Who are these righteous? Those who have believed and trusted in Jesus Christ. Have you surrendered to Jesus? Where, where are you today in your life? What's going on in your life today? Are you surrendered to Jesus? Are you following Jesus? I read a, a quote from D.A. Carson. I'm going to paraphrase because I can't remember it exactly. I just read it and I wasn't planning on using it, but God just brought it back to my mind. D.A. Carson said something to the effect of, uh, many people want uh, to be called Christians. They want enough of Jesus to be called a Christian, but they don't want enough of Jesus to be inconvenienced. In other words, people use this term, I, I, I can't stand this term, fire insurance. I just want my fire insurance. I want my get out of hell free card. Do you know that doesn't exist? Adrian Rogers said, if your faith, your faith won't get you to church on Sunday, I doubt it's going to get you into heaven. There's no such thing as fire insurance. You're either following Jesus or you're not. You don't have, well, I'm going to go to heaven, but I'm going to live like I want. Really? You sure you're going to heaven then? Y'all okay? Am I hurting anybody's feelings? If Jesus means so little to us that we're not willing to, to sacrifice and live for Him, then what on God's green earth would have us believe that that little amount of faith or acknowledgement is going to be enough for Jesus to welcome us into glory and forgive all our sins? What, what kind of logic is that? No, Jesus, you don't mean enough to me for me to make sacrifices and, and actually live by Your Word you don't mean that much to me, but oh, Bob, when I when the end of my life comes, I want you to remember who I am. You know, get me out of this. Does that make sense to anybody? That's because it doesn't make sense. And see, the thing about this parable here that's so profound when you read those four verses—two verses of a parable, two verses of explanation—when you see what happens, that net gathers, look at verse 47, fish of every kind, and it's filled up and then separated. So the angels are going to take the righteous to heaven and take the wicked and throw them into the furnace of fire. 
And so, what what do we need to understand? Again, David Turner writes that the, the net does not discriminate as it gathers the fish, and neither should disciples of the kingdom as they fish for people. The, the gospel of Christ is for all who would receive and trust in Jesus. Right? Everybody. It's a universal plea. Come to Jesus. Doesn't matter who you are. Doesn't matter where you're from. Doesn't matter what country you're in. Doesn't matter what language you speak. Come to Jesus. Period. Come to Jesus. And the righteous are those who have surrendered to Christ. The wicked are those who have rejected Him. It's very fitting that Jesus would tell that parable and that explanation in the face of all this continued opposition. He's trying to make a point. The kingdom is exclusive, not because Jesus is trying to keep people out. It's just because some people just say no. Now, I don't understand that. I don't understand it. But it happens. It happens every day. People reject the gospel. Number three. We should prioritize the teaching of Christ. Prioritize the teaching of Christ. And what do I mean by that? Well, let, let me explain from these two verses, 51 and 52. When you look at what the text says, Jesus has just finished. Remember, He's finished all these parables. We're just looking at these three. But verse 51 really goes all the way back. All the way back to the first part of chapter 13. He's, he's starting to tell these parables. He's talking about the seeds and the sower. And He's explaining that. And He's talking about the tares and the wheat and the mustard seed and the leaven. And then He's talking about the hidden treasure and the costly pearl and the dragnet. And then after all that, verse 51, y'all understand what I'm saying? Do you understand? And look at their response. Yeah. Yeah, we're starting to get it. So look what he says to them in verse 52. Okay, if you understand, then here's your job. What do the disciples become later on after the book of Acts? When they, what are they referred to? Not disciples. Apostles, right? You know why? They have, a new, they have a new task, right? When Pentecost arrives, the Holy Spirit comes down. Peter preaches the first sermon of the New Testament church, chapter 2 of Acts, verse 14, all the way down to verse thirty. Six, and there's a huge response. What happens after that? The church is, is birthed. Then what are all those apostles doing? They're sharing the gospel and they're teaching the gospel, right? So their job becomes teachers. They are the new teachers of the law. Like the ones, the scribes and the Pharisees and teachers of the law, the ones who opposed Christ, they're in a different category. But here, Jesus is saying, you're going to have a job. They don't know it yet. You're going to be teaching. So He calls them scribes. Look at verse 52. Scribes who have now become part of the kingdom of heaven. So these are the soon-to-be apostles. When they teach, look what He says in verse 52. You're going to be like a head of a household. What's the head of a household? Spiritually speaking... Spiritual leader, right? Spiritual leader. So Jesus is saying, if you're going to be spiritual leaders for the New Testament church and beyond, here's what you do. You have resources. 
See the storeroom? Verse 52, the storeroom. You're bringing resources out of there, and some of them are new, some of them are old. All right, put all, follow me here. What existed prior to Jesus being born in Bethlehem, the Messiah has come in, in physical form, took on the form of a human being. What existed prior to that? The entire Old Testament. Some things are old. What did Jesus say? You can turn there or you can just listen to this reference. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Really 17 to 20, but 17. What did Jesus say? Don't think I came to abolish the law. What did he come to do? Fulfill the law, right? And then what happens right after that in Matthew chapter 5? Seven times, what does Jesus do? You've heard it said this, but I'm saying this. you got something old, you got something new. Does that make sense? Verse 52 here, things new and old. In other words, why are we prioritizing the teaching of Christ? Because Christ is fulfilling the law. So his teaching, specifically the teaching that Jesus is doing, he's giving full understanding to the Old Testament. So this, this is beautiful because this is why those who teach, if you're a member of the kingdom of heaven, and you're teaching, you're trying to be a spiritual leader, that's why Jesus tells them, well, you need to be like the head of a household because you're not abolishing anything, you're fulfilling, you're showing how I have fulfilled this law, so you're going to share the gospel from the whole counsel of God, Old Testament and New Testament. And by the way, listen to this. Leon Morris wrote this, this is beautiful. If the word order is significant, then the new matters more than the old, and Jesus is saying that the new teachings His followers are embracing do not do away with the old teachings, but are the key to understanding them. I, I've tried to, to make this plain over these past years, but I'll just say it real uh, explicitly right now. If you don't read and, and try to get a grasp of understanding the Old Testament, then you will never fully understand the New Testament. It's the whole counsel of God. So when Jesus comes and He's teaching all these things, we love, everybody loves the New Testament. The New Testament. Well, and, and I don't I don't really care much about uh, Leviticus or you know reading the Old Testament. Right? I mean, it's, it's tough reading, tough sledding sometimes. I get it. But understand, the Old Testament is what Jesus was explaining when He was bringing uh, like all those light bulbs going on. He was explaining. The Old Testament. He was fulfilling the law. So the teaching of Christ becomes very important. And so we should prioritize the teaching of Christ. If we're going to try to preach the gospel, we need to connect those dots. Right? The Old Testament is the prophecy of Jesus coming as the Messiah. And the New Testament, He actually comes in physical form as the Messiah. And then we connect those things. All those times in Matthew's Gospel when Matthew says this was to fulfill this prophecy and he quotes the Old Testament. He's making those connections, right, to this Jewish audience. So that's what's going on. We have to prioritize the teaching of Christ. Last thing, number four. Recognize the person of Christ. 
It's not enough just to prioritize the teaching of Christ. We need to recognize the person of Christ. So Jesus, in verse 53, says He finishes His teaching. He departs for His homeland of Nazareth. And you would think, what did we do last Sunday? What did we call that last Sunday? Homecoming, right? That's a good thing. It's supposed to be a happy thing. It's supposed to be an opportunity once a year. I know a lot of churches use this as like the church anniversary, but it's also a time when if there's folks who have been here in the church but have moved off uh, one time a year, hey, y'all, y'all come back and, and get reacquainted with your old home church, you know, that type of in, uh, environment. And that's why we have fellowship. We just have a special pastor come. And, and this past week we had someone who had prior experience here, prior ties to the church. That was, that was on purpose for homecoming. Okay. This this wasn't like that. This wasn't all happy times and everybody, you know, loving on each other. The Bible says he departs for his hometown of Nazareth, verse fifty three. Then he starts teaching in the synagogue because that's what he does, right? His whole earthly ministry. What's he doing? He's teaching in the synagogue, he's preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and he's healing all kinds of sickness and disease. That's what he's doing. So this is no different. He comes home to his hometown, he starts teaching in the synagogue, and so there's, two, there's kind of a, a contrast here. There's two things happening. First of all, the people are astonished. So, so listen how, how terrible this is. It's not like they don't hear his teaching... It's not like they don't see His miracles. They do hear it. They do see it. And they're still mad about it. That doesn't make good sense. Because the Bible says they were astonished. But they were astonished not to the point of, wow, this is wonderful. Jesus, thank You so much for coming back to Your hometown, not forgetting about us. You brought the message and the healing here. That would be a great response, right? That's not what happened. They immediately start questioning. Look at all the questions from verse 54 down to like 57. Isn't this that carpenter's son? Isn't his mother named Mary? Aren't his brothers named in the list of four brothers? Aren't his sisters here too? In other words, we know this guy. It's almost as if the envy and jealousy... It's almost as if somebody says this. They didn't say it. It's not in the text. But this is just kind of what I hear in my imagination. Who does he think he is? Right? I knew him when he was knee-high to a grasshopper. Who does this guy think he is coming in, teaching all this stuff, doing all these things? Who does he think he is? Does he think he's special? Now that he's made it big? Kind of like that. That's a human interpretation. You know, don't take it for any more than that. But that's just kind of how I, I felt when I'm reading through this. Who does he think he is? Isn't he just one of us? You can almost just sense the, the envy, the, the jealousy, and the offense. That's what the Bible says. Right there in verse 57. Instead of thank you, for, for coming home and bringing the gospel and bringing the miracles of healing. Thank you, Jesus. Instead of that, look at verse 57. They took offense. 
David Turner said, it's a common human experience that well-known people are often not highly regarded by those who knew them before they achieved fame. Unbelief is sad, but here it is especially pathetic. They are rejecting God's saving rule. You know, it's one thing to just be jealous and kind of keep it to yourself and like, man, I wish I could have been doing that stuff. That, I wish I could have all that attention. That's one thing. It's another thing to allow your personal jealousy and envy, especially in this case, to cause you to completely reject the one person and message that will save your life for all eternity. How on earth can you be so blinded by these feelings of insecurity, really, selfishness? I wish I could be doing that. How can you be so blinded by those emotions that it would cause you to reject the life-giving gospel of Jesus. It's just, it blows your mind. It boggles your mind. How can someone be so... And, and, and before you answer that question, and think, gosh, I can't believe these people did that. Really? Don't we do the same thing? Don't we struggle with the same thing? Don't we get sometimes so blinded by emotions in particular situations that... It clouds our good judgment and we respond in ways we shouldn't or we miss out on things we should be a part of. Anybody, don't, please don't raise your hand. Anybody ever held a grudge? Anybody ever harbored resentment? Probably to a family member? Anybody got unhealed relationships? Unresolved conflict that's just going on? And, and why? Why is, it, why is it going on? Here's why. Because one or the other of us, I'll just use myself, one or the other of us in the conflict are too proud to humble ourselves and say, you know what, it ain't worth all this. Let's, let's, let's heal this thing. Let's get it over with. Let's just put it behind us and let's, let's solve this problem. Why, why can't we do that? Why can't we just humble ourselves, swallow our pride, and be healed. It's the same reason why these people wouldn't accept Jesus. It's all because of these selfish, selfish emotions and, and pride and envy and jealousy. All, all sinful. All sinful. In Galatians 5, this is the opposite of the fruit of the Spirit. This is the stuff that comes before Galatians 5.22, that list of bad things, fruit of the, the flesh. That's what's going on. Those are the things that prevent us from ultimately following Jesus. And so these people were offended, and Jesus responds with a very simple, concise statement, Verse 57. And he says it to them. 
He doesn't just say it. He says it to them. A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. Now, that's bad enough, right? He's pointing out to them, you know, I knew you were going to treat me like this. I knew it was going to be a problem. That's bad enough. Until you read verse 58. Wasn't Jesus fully capable of, of healing them and, and displaying His miraculous power and, and helping open their eyes and their hearts and, and seeing the truth of the gospel of the kingdom? Wasn't He able to do that? Of course. But they didn't want it. They were too busy being offended to receive the blessings. So verse 58 says he didn't do many miracles there. And it's not because he was being spiteful. See what the verse says? Just look at it yourself. Verse 58. He did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. Folks, it's, it's, it really is that simple. It really is. I've said it before. i say it again. Everybody gets what they want. You want Jesus? He will bankrupt heaven to find you. I mean, He'll, he'll go anywhere. You can't run far enough away. But, you keep on and keep on saying, no, no, I don't want any of that. I don't need you. Guess what? Eventually, okay. That's the way you want it. I'm right here, but okay. If you don't want it, fine. Let's see how that works for you. Not good. You know, in, in all this, all this, it's, it's almost as if Jesus is just displaying patience and long-suffering and He's trying to give ample opportunities for people to respond. And they won't. You know, over in the Gospel of John, in chapter 17... Jesus, this is what's called commonly the high priestly prayer. And Jesus is praying for His followers, His disciples. Do you know what Jesus says in John 17, verse 3? Here it is. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. He, he's praying for people's blindness to go away. He's praying for people to accept Him and His message. The, the only true God. You see that? That's eternal life. That, that people will know the one true God and Jesus Christ whom He sent. That is eternal life in the words of Jesus. But we just keep saying no. Why, why do people continually reject the Gospel? kind of goes back to that quote from D.A. Carson. People 
want enough of Jesus to be called a Christian, but not so much of Jesus that it causes them some inconvenience. I'm going to just tell you, living the Christian life, it was never advertised as being easy. But it's always advertised as being good. Because Jesus is good. And He has your best interest in His heart. And He's just pleading, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Don't, don't delay. I don't know where you are today. I'd love to stand up here and be naive and say, you know, every single person who comes to this church is a Christian. Not true. Statistically impossible. So I don't know where you are today. I don't know where you are with Jesus, but I can tell you this, I'm pleading with you. Jesus is pleading with you. Take off the blinders. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Call on Jesus. Be forgiven. Be saved. That's all He's asking. Just come to Jesus. Let's pray. listening to this message from God's Word. For more information on Berlin Baptist Church, we invite you to explore our website at www.berlinchurchsc.org.